Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS Podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. I'm going to talk very quickly, though, because we've got so much in this week's podcast that we're not even going to chat to each other very much, are we? No, no, no. We're no time. No and I'm sorry about the gardening tips. We'll do more next yeah, week. But we've got a lot to pack in this week, haven't we? We have. We have. This week, Fintan O'Toole on the man who would be Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, and Linda Kinsler on the Ukrainian poet, Sergei Jadan. And we also have a poem from John Kinsella. But first, it cannot have escaped anyone's notice that this is a year of elections across the world. A few weeks ago, we looked at net zero, particularly the Conservative Party's changing attitudes towards it. This week, we're looking at Labour, and in particular, Keir Starmer, the man who will be the next Prime Minister if Labour win. Fintan O'Toole, the author and political and cultural commentator, has written a fascinating review of a new biography of Starmer, and we're delighted that he can join us today to talk about it. Fintan, many thanks for talking to us. Oh, it's lovely to be with you. So you start your piece with this very striking assertion, which I'm not going to ruin by trying to sum it up in sort of four words, that the UK is suffering from a peculiar condition. Can you talk us through your diagnosis? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the UK is suffering from um, post-revolutionary disillusionment without actually having had a revolution. Uh, so most revolutions, probably all of them, I mean, end up with, uh, you know, people who support the revolution feeling that um, they haven't really got what they had hoped for because, uh, you know, the hope is that the world is going to be made anew uh, and it generally isn't. And things, you know, don't turn out the way that they were promised to be. And Britain has gone through over the last eight years, I mean, all of the pangs of a revolution with Brexit. You know, I mean, the Brexit was a huge thing to do. I mean, it is the sort of very large scale change of governance that generally only does come about when you actually have a revolution. Right. And it, it had all the sort of usual phases of that, you know, the uh, the, the Declaration of Independence Day, the waving of the flags, the 
denunciation of the traitors, uh, yeah. the promises yeah. that, you know, the world was starting again. This was year zero and everything was going to be better. And I don't think it's controversial to say that even for many, many of the people who voted for Brexit, it hasn't really fulfilled any of that promise. So you have this kind of strange situation, it seems to me, looking from my slightly skewed angle from Ireland at Britain, which is that you have this paradox, really, of a society which seems to require something pretty like a revolution, actually. You know, it's in very deep trouble and it is in many ways crying out for very, very radical change. But on the other hand, it's exhausted from a period of faux change, we might say, you know, where everything was obsessed by one big idea. It sort of completely dominated uh, the whole system of government, took up all of the space where real argument about the nature of the place, the nature of the society, the ways in which it needs to transform itself, all of that was kind of sucked up by, by Brexit. And Brexit, to me, I can't think of another successful, indeed triumphant political project which ran out of steam so quickly, right? So it, it has long-term consequences, but it's not a long-term political project. It's kind of, it's gone nowhere. And so there is this exhaustion, this disillusionment, but on the other hand, this desperate need for radicalism. Yeah, so there's a kind of, there's a sort of fatigue and a certain amount of cynicism, I think, isn't there, that's, that's set in as you say, without having, no, I mean, no guillotines in the marketplaces, thank heaven, but, you know, but yeah, rad radical a sort of blow up, wasn't it? A sort of question to go along with that. Was the sort of seismic revolution of Brexit, the, the faux revolution, as you say, was it really because it was a kind of proxy for all sorts of other dissatisfactions? Yes. And actually no one cared about Brexit particularly until they did, until they decided that they did. Yes. I think the problem with Brexit wasn't whether or not Britain was going to leave the European Union. I mean, you know, I, I would have a problem with it. I deeply regret it. And I know very many people in, in the UK do. But people had an absolute right to decide to do that. Right. The European Union is is not, even though some of the uh, Brexiteers told us it was, you know, a, a Stalinist empire or a Hitler Mark II. You know, it's a free democratic association. Britain was perfectly entitled to leave. The problem really was that Brexit was a kind of proxy war, wasn't it? I mean, it, if you looked in the years before Brexit, you asked people in Britain, you know, what were the top 10 issues on their minds politically? I mean, the European Union didn't really feature at all. Mm -hmm. What happened was that an opportunity for sort of cynical internal party political management reasons of the Tory party, an opportunity was given for uh, people to express their rage and, and dissatisfaction about a whole set of other things. This is what happens in referendums. You know, I'm in Ireland where we, we do referendums pretty frequently because we have a written constitution and you can change This it. week, in fact. Yeah. Well, we're debating some that are coming up, yes, in mid-March. Um, so we're, we're right in the middle of referendum campaigns, you know. And what happens with them is that, of course, people debate the issues, but they very often become... It's a terrible image, but remember there used to be, you would go into butcher shops and they would have this yellow sticky paper hanging up to catch the flies. You know? <laughs> yes. I think of referendums. It is a horrible image. That's a very large piece of yellow sticky paper, you know, where 
every fly that is buzzing around in people's heads is going to get stuck in that. And, you know, what this means, I think, is that, and I think what's unusual about the Brexit one is that it's it was enormously passionate for both sides. It had huge kind of effects in terms of almost kind of tribalizing the society among, you know, leavers and remainers. But it actually did nothing. I mean, and it was never going to do anything in a way. It was a a distraction, I think, from the real fundamental causes of the difficulties, which are economic, social, but also, I would argue, constitutional. I think the UK has very deep structural problems in terms of its identity and how it works. But all of those things, I think, got sort of loaded into the Brexit container. And Brexit was never going to be an answer to almost any of those questions. No. And so that container, as it were, full of all those questions, is now what Keir Starmer has, to some extent, inherited, will inherit if he becomes prime minister. And there's a, there's a number of paradoxes that you kind of outline that go with the situation that he's in, with the kind of idea that he just has to stand still and do nothing because the Tories are, you know, very, very unpopular and not perceived well at all. He has to stand still and do nothing. But he will also have to be very radical. You've got this this phrase, he seems to want to present himself as both the winds of epic change and the solid brick wall against which they were blow. He has to be two kind of completely opposing things, doesn't he? He does. He does. And epoch-making politicians, you know, the really big figures, like them or not, do manage to mm. send out these opposing signals. You know, they they become so potent precisely because they can straddle these sorts of contradictions. I think Starmer's difficulty is that he's not doing that at the moment, right? So he does want to present himself, or at least did want to present himself. <laughs> he's losing even this energy, but he did want to present himself as a radical force for change. You know, he's talked about, written about how profound he thinks Britain's problems are. And he has referenced 1945 and 1997, you know, as huge moments which they undoubtedly are, you know, it, there's no question, but that historically those are big, big moments. I mean, one could also have added in, you know, the, the liberal landslide of 1906 or Margaret Thatcher's election in 1979. I think looking at it as objectively as possible, this year's general election in the UK needs to be as momentous as one of those years. You know, it can't just be sort of ordinary transfer of power it has to carry some sense that that this is transformative. And yet, while Starmer seems intellectually to understand that, he's terrified of presenting himself as an agent of radical change. I think perhaps because of the very things we've been talking about, perhaps because he feels that this is a, a polity which is exhausted by ideas of radical change, which you know has had this kind of bogus transformative moment and therefore doesn't want another one. But I wonder, is he right about that? I get the sense that actually he has swung so far into reassurance that he's actually at risk of denying people the sense of radical optimism that they require. Mm. To what extent, I wonder, is that also because of what we have seen happen to truth and to facts in politics, in the general discourse. And this is not only, a, as we know, a Brexit or British-related problem. It's happened in societies across the world. 
But I wonder whether he feels that anything that he says now, of course, a politician will always have his own, her own manifesto thrown back at them if they deviate from it in office. But it seems now there can be a twisting of facts and truth that can leave you absolutely stranded, can in fact influence public opinion, even when it's simply not based in facts. Yes, I think that's absolutely understandable. You know, if I was Keir Starmer, I'd be pretty terrified of what they're going to do to me in the course of a general election campaign. And in a way, of course, the more desperate the Conservative Party's prospects get, the more it's going to have to resort to, you know, just a kind of negativity, perhaps worse than we've ever seen before. Mm. And it's certainly true that anything Starmer says is going to be twisted, is going to be turned into a source of terror for Middle England, you know. But how do you deal with that? You know, you can't deal with that by just running away from it and keeping your mouth shut. You know, it's it's really not an option. They're going to do it to you anyway. You know, if Keir Starmer says good morning, you know, they're going to say, yeah, but look at the way he said good morning. Look at the tone, the sneering tone of his voice. You know, like mm-hmm. there, there is no way not to have that process of distortion inflicted on you as a potential prime minister. It's a fire that you have to go through. And it seems to me you pass through it by setting the agenda, by actually trying to shape a conversation, which is different. You're going to have to take those knocks. You're going to have to take the lies and the distortions. But you don't do that by hiding. If you hide, you're just you're, you're leaving all of the big stuff, all the big emotion, all the desperation, all the desire for change. You're kind of leaving that all out there as ammunition for whoever wants to pick it up and use it in malign ways, you have to use it positively and and you have to be able to shape, to use that terrible word, some kind of a narrative, you know, around possibility, around hope, around transformation, because I don't think Britain has other choices. Mm -hmm. How about this book that you've reviewed for us, which is an official biography, isn't it? And you say also based on some of his, it was some of his own work as an autobiography. And then he sort of handed that over, lots of access to family and friends. But you say it's still sort of filled with uncertainty. It's fascinating. You know, it's a very well written book by Tom Baldwin and, and it enjoys more access than anybody else is going to have. He used to work as a, a communications director for the Labour Party. He's obviously kind of connected, knows Stammer very well. And he says in the introduction that Stammer had himself started to write an autobiography and then gave it up. And he's handed that over, as it were, whatever <laughs> drafts he had. So even though this is not an official biography as such, it's it's obviously had a lot of help from Stammer. And a lot of access to his family and friends and people who have known him through through the years. So it's probably as close as we're going to get to a portrait that Starmer would like to present to the public. And then Baldwin's very honest about this. You know, it's 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 full of uncertainty. You still get the sense that this person who probably now knows Starmer better than anybody else except his wife um, still doesn't know him all that well. You know, that he 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 still comes across as a figure. Uh, who's who's just very, very difficult to pin down. To me, the most interesting and insightful thing in it is, is this sense of, of Starmer's childhood. Uh, you know, we're all shaped by our childhood. And if you know anybody or if you've been in the situation yourself of kids who grow up with a parent who is ill, psychologically ill or physically ill, often develop a capacity to compartmentalize their lives. 
They don't tell people outside the family what the problems are. They get on with sort of coping with not necessarily talking about it. They get very, very good at controlling their feelings. And Stammer is one of those kids, right? So he grew up with a father who seems to have been really uncommunicative, you know, someone who obviously very much loved the mother, but but could not communicate his love for the kids. And a mother who was obviously a lovely person and she comes across as a, as a remarkable woman, but a woman who had to deal with this very difficult degenerative condition uh, from the time she herself was young, who was very ill and getting getting sicker as time was going on. And Stammer seems to have been the good kid, you know, who, who sort of coped with all of this, but did not talk about it. So friends in school would say they knew nothing about this, for example, which and it was obviously one of, the, one of the most important things in his life. And so he, he became very, very good at, at compartmentalizing. And I think the reason this is important is it seems that that's what he's doing now politically. Right? He's compartmentalizing all the idealism and the passion and the transformative energy, which he seems to really have. That's in one box. And then the sort of pragmatic business of gaining power is in the other box. And he's trying to keep that passionate compartment away from the public as much as possible. And, uh, you know, again, you have to wonder whether this is this is the right thing to do. I was also really fascinated by that suggestion in your piece about his family life, the sort of personal hardship. There's what's going on within the family with the illness. And then there's the class dissonance that happens when he gets his place, his funded place at free grammar school, when he begins to excel academically, when it's clear he's destined for really quite great things professionally. Probably he didn't even envisage it would go this far, but, he, you know, Casey, knighthood, the whole thing. And then at the same time, his father, who had, you know, his parents called him Kia, becomes a sort of, well, he's of course an archetype of a labour that is being left behind. He is not that sort of key labour person that we we envisaged it almost seems like a sort of another era in a way absolutely yeah I, I think this is fascinating you know the father figure so Stammer's father was a tool maker and it's hard to understand now what that might have meant in working class communities industrial communities you know the tool maker was a sort of working class aristocrat in a factory you know the the, the tool maker was almost the sort of last vestige of the old, the really old working class, the artisan working class, you know, mm. because mm. the toolmaker, and they were almost all men, so I don't know, but they, you know, the, he worked with his hands. He 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 made stuff, which in turn was critical to all the other operations of the factory, right? So, so intellectually and skill wise, you know, this was a member of the working class very much, but but one who had real prestige, and. I think there are two things that are fascinating. One is that for some reason, which is never quite explained, the Stammers lived in Surrey, in a village in Surrey, you know, which had a lot of uh, rustic and middle class kind of uh, social world around it, where being a toolmaker just wouldn't cut it. I mean, people wouldn't really know what this was or it wouldn't have mattered very much. If they'd lived in a more traditional working class community, I think there would have been a lot more prestige for his father. And secondly, of course, this is exactly the industrial world that's declining, you know. So so in Starmer's youth, you know, it's it's coinciding, of course, 
with the arrival of Thatcherism, with the the closing down of so much of that industry, the factory, I mean, it's it's almost, you couldn't make it up if it was in a movie, you'd say it was a bit too heavy handed, but the factory where Stammer's father worked, you know, it was closed down and became a big superstore, Tesco superstore, you know, to embody the shift from an industrial British economy to a service-led British economy, you know, you've got it all there. And I think Baldwin does quite a good job of, of, of sort of explaining Stammer's father, who becomes this very taciturn, gruff, uncommunicative figure in terms of those kinds of social changes that are going on, in terms of somebody who feels that he's not understood or valued in the way that he ought to be because of his skills and because of his attainments. And so here is then fascinating, right? Which is you've got to attain something else. You know, how do you remake yourself? And as you mentioned, he he gets you know uh, to a grammar school, although he's 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 not. It's, it's not a fee paying school when he goes there. It becomes one while he's there, uh, but he never he never pays. But obviously, it's kind of um, upwardly mobile. Then he goes to Leeds University, is a star student of law. You know, goes to Oxford, gets into a very very trendy. Doughty Street Chambers, you know, and so he comes across as a fiercely ambitious figure. I mean, really someone who is driven. His image, which seems to be true, is everybody says he's a real fun guy. You know, he he's obsessed with soccer. He likes going for a pint and all that stuff. But underneath that, he's, he's clearly working extraordinarily hard, um, is making himself into someone who's going to stand out. Not just by his intellectual capacity, but by by his his seriousness about work. Mm. And I mean, this if I were British, frankly, that would be very attractive to me right now. <laughs> I mean, I know a SWAT. In other words, it's it's the class SWAT, not the person who breezes in and pretends that they know everything and knows nothing, a la Johnson. Exactly. So mm. you know, you've suffered the sort of horrible effortlessness of the old Etonians, you know, and. So someone who, you know, is clearly extraordinarily competent, very highly driven, uh, takes things extremely seriously. But there's this weird thing, and it, it comes across again and again and again in Baldwin's book, you know, where all the people who know him say, but when I see him on TV, I don't recognize him. You know, he's not the guy I know. The guy I know is all those things. You know, he's driven and he's he's hardworking and he's serious, but he's also great fun He's great company, um, you know, he's just, and it's it's this weird thing, I think, isn't it, that I don't know if they still ask this question in polling, but certainly in America, the pollsters always ask, you know, would you like to go for a beer with ex-politician? Mm. And mm. Starmer comes across as the guy you would not want to go for a beer with, you know, whereas in fact, what everybody says is he's the great guy to go for a beer with, you know, he's he's just... He's great fun. He's just like everybody else. He's nowhere as a graces. He's, he's a really enjoyable company. So what happens? You know, again, this is the compartmentalization thing, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to mention that because you do you do say, I mean, a, a quite a certain amount of comp compartmentalization is definitely needed in a politician, isn't it? You don't oh, yeah. want you don't want someone with no no boundaries. I mean, and you've had that. that you've had that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We've seen, that, seen that. So maybe yeah. you <laughs> want someone who who knows who knows where the boundaries are. But do you think it's all? I mean, I wonder if it's also because of the recent history of the Labour Party. It's it's just holding in so tight and the pressure of seeming like a stable, safe pair of hands, nothing to be afraid of. Yes. Do you think that's overtaking the ambition and the radical change that seemed to be there before? 
Yes. So the really successful politician, as we were saying earlier, is one who can encompass contradictions, right? Who can who can be these different things to different people at the same time. And, you know, Starmer is obviously a very complex individual who has these different sides to him, you know. And again, this is what, you know, everybody who's quoted in the book who talks about him as a person, you know, how all that stuff comes across, that he's very genuine, very passionate, very idealistic, very good fun, all those kinds of aspects to him. But I think both because, remember, he took over a Labour Party, which was in an absolutely shocking state, you know, yeah. whatever. We don't need to go back into the Corbyn years or any of that, but just electorally, I mean, on the floor, organisationally in a terrible way, you know, had the sort of whole anti-Semitism scandal hanging over it, had become deeply, deeply unpopular in its own former heartlands, you know. So it's perfectly understandable why, you know, he would he would say, you know, I've just got to get down and work really hard and make people think that the Labour Party is OK again. The problem is that having done that, it seems to me that the political logic is to say, look, you know, people are voting for us in record numbers in by elections. We're not the scary, crazy people, you know, howling at the gate anymore. We're accepted as an alternative government. But the next thing you've got to do is give people some sense of what that alternative government looks like. How alternative is it? You know, and, and if you keep saying, we're not doing that, we're not doing that. No, don't worry. We're not doing our 28 billion a year. Yeah, I was going to mention that zero, actually, because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Do, do you think that the treat, Labour's treatment of that is, is in a way kind of emblematic of his position? Very much so. Very much so. You know, uh, I mean, for me, again, look, you know, looking at it from the outside, there, there are two big things. I mean, one is, I mean, I think everybody, objective person says that Britain is starved of investment. It's a country with still, for all the problems with, you know, the long term political problems, the problems of Brexit, and everything else, I mean, it has huge assets, you know, fantastic traditions, huge intellectual capital, cultural capital, but it doesn't have capital. You know, there's not enough investments going in into public services, into, into the private sector, into innovation, into all of those kinds of things that are needed. And so any government coming in has to be saying, we're going to invest, you know, and Labour was saying this. And two years ago, Starmer was saying, you know, that the, the big kind of green investment program was only the beginning, you know, almost hinting that maybe this wasn't going to be enough. And then in this excruciating way, you know, it's been pulled back, pulled back, pulled back, you know, where it's now down to what, four and a half billion, which is just not worth doing. I mean, it's compared no, everything to just scale. Gets, gets neutered yeah. and neutralized, I suppose. Yeah. And if you take something else to me, I, I didn't really mention this in the piece, but one of the things that's really shocking if you're looking in, you know, is the levels of destitution in Britain. Mm. I mean, mm. and destitution is now the word that is being used objectively yeah. uh, and one of the aspects of this right is this policy of saying if you have more than two kids the extra kids don't count you know for a lot of welfare benefits yeah i mean that's shocking stuff that's victorian deserving poor stuff you know i mean it really mm. is terrible mm. <laughs> nobody else well, this, would do this there's victorian diseases coming back it was in yes exactly the, exactly the, you know it's coming like back to rickets and rickets yeah. and yeah yeah, yeah. And this stuff was rooted out by successive, and you know, not, not I mean, Labour was obviously a huge part of this, but the Liberals, you know, the, the welfare state started with the Liberals in, in 1906. 
conservative governments, you know, did enormous things in terms of trying to deal with that kind of poverty, just getting rid of it. And the sheer meanness of it. And that a Labour Party is afraid to say, oh, well, no, we're not going to do that. You know, it just seems to me to be breathtaking. Just that moral level of, well, actually, we don't do cruelty to poor people. You know, like that, that's that's yeah, not what, who we are. You know? And politically very self-defeating and, and stupid in medium to long yeah. term, one would one would who think. are you trying to impress? Who who are you trying yeah. to convince with this stuff? You know. The people who think it's a good idea to hammer the destitute are not going to vote for the Labour Party anyway. <laughs> you know? so, so why not infuse some sense of moral purpose? You know, people go back to 97 and, and I think the phrase was used about Tony Blair, you know, when it was clear that Labour was going to win the 97 election, you know, that they were holding power before they got elected. They were holding it like, a you know, somebody walking across a slippery floor with a Ming vase. And... Yes, Sarmer is like, is like that, you know, and it's it's understandable. But even so, I mean, Blair, God knows there's a lot wrong with Blair, but Blair and Brand between them did manage to convey a sense that big stuff was going to happen, you know, that change was going to be really pretty remarkable. And that was the excitement. And mm. they did big things. Again, you know, people are critical of them not doing enough. But I mean, devolution, for example, was a huge thing to do in, in constitutional terms. The the program that Brown drove to eliminate child poverty, you know, was a really, really big thing. The Sure Start program, all that stuff, you know, and it worked. It changed people's lives in very dramatic ways. It made people feel like it, you know, Britain was a was was a much more civilized society, better place to live, a place that had values. And we know that Samer thinks all those things. And probably if you believe what you know, comes out in this book from his friends, believes them passionately. I mean, really deeply believes them. But he's scared to convey the impression that he has those passions in case people get scared of them. And I don't know, it just seems to me to be an extraordinary misreading of where British history is right now. Mm. But listen, we could we could talk about this until until the election, which <laughs> whenever that yes, is. <laughs> Sadly, we no. could. <laughs> We have to let you go, but we're so grateful to you, Vinton, for that wonderful conversation and for shedding shedding light on the new book and the figure himself and the whole political scene and what's going to happen. Yes, I think we will need to implore you to come back and talk to us <laughs> after the election. We really, we really will. Well, I'll, I'll be happy to uh, happy to join you anytime. It's, it's a lovely Please do. Brilliant. Thank Please you do. so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to Fintan O'Toole for that fascinating conversation about the future of British politics. And now we have something very different, but also in its own way about politics. This week's TLS features a new poem by John Kinsella called Rooks, and we're delighted that he joins us now to read it. John, many thanks for coming. A pleasure. I was wondering, this might be just very simplistic of me, but was the poem inspired in any way by the collective noun, which is a parliament of rooks? Yes, the poem is full of puns, actually, and plays with you know language and ideas in all sorts of different ways across stanza to stanza. So most certainly um, you might also have in the background a murder of crows as well as a, yeah. you know, a, a Corvid kind of gesture. But yes. OK, wonderful. Well, why didn't you take it away and give us your poem? Rooks. Passing between brief clumps of pines, I am addled by complex discourse of the rookery, or two rookeries speaking within themselves and also across each other. 
with the sun consuming the swan form of Fastnet Rock and Lighthouse, the inlet brazen with sheen, it would be too easy to frame as primarily occasional the Fuyuton attached to the evergreen, while the serious hawthorn tree in the rocky right angle of a field speaks a politics of bareness and the catonic. Note the rooks walking at the foot of the hawthorn or filling every spar of those pines. This is political, isn't it? Unique to a moment, making judgments, stating positions, debating. Still to come on the show, Linda Kinstler on two new books from the Ukrainian poet Serhii Zhadan. And to read all the pieces we talk about and much more, remember to subscribe to the TLS. Just head on over to our website at the-tls.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Listeners might remember us talking with Toby Lishtig about the Ukrainian poet, novelist and musician Serhii Zhadan, whose novel The Orphanage won the EBRD Literature Prize when Toby and I were both part of the judging panel. 
Jadan lives in Kharkiv and his chronicle of the impact of the war there and throughout Ukraine is captured in a new book of dispatches, which Linda Kinsler has reviewed this week alongside his new collection of poetry. We're delighted she joins us now. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, Linda, and such an interesting writer to talk about, isn't he, Jadan? He's so famous in Ukraine, <laughs> and not only for his poetry and prose, he's also a musician and the self-styled alternative mayor of Kharkiv. <laughs> yes, um, everyone in, in Ukraine certainly knows the name Serhiy Jadan, he has been one of the most prominent cultural figures in the country over the last 10 years. He, as a student, he participated in the Orange Revolution. He's always kind of been on the front lines of the protest movements, fighting for independence in Ukraine, while at the same time building his career as a musician, as you mentioned, he um, is currently part of a band called Jadan and the Dogs, which has been spending the past uh, several years after the full-scale invasion, touring the country and playing for troops, playing for citizens in bomb shelters, doing everything they can to keep civilian morale up. Um, and he's also, you know, a political commentator. He's very active in public and a prolific novelist, writer, and journalist, there's really no genre that he can't do. And so we are very lucky now to have two new English translations of his work. One, his prose, uh, kind of Facebook posts from the first six months of the full-scale invasion, and the other, a very profound collection of newly translated poems. I was really interested about those dispatches and their origins in Facebook posts. That obviously just, just starts you thinking they must have a different kind of tone. They're from a different space, but, but they are a chronicle of what happened after the full-scale invasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, like all of Jadon's work, it's a, you know, they're called The Sky Above Kharkiv, and like all of his work, it's a kind of ode to the city um, it's also the city where my grandmother was born and raised and her whole family came from. And my own cousins were only evacuated from Kharkiv about a year into the war. Um, and a few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to meet Jadan in Kharkiv and interview him about his work. Um, and so he really, you know, as these posts make clear, takes it upon himself to be one of the most prominent public voices in the city, to speak to Kharkivites, um, Kharkivchani, uh, on his Facebook profile to kind of tell them, you know, in some instances, right when the war began, people needed to know where water distribution was. People posted telling him, you know, if they were at the hospital, if they needed supplies. So he played a very vital role. And he also kind of gives us a weather report every Almost every post begins with him saying, you know, the sky above Kharkiv is cloudy today, um, but we are waking up one day closer to victory. Um, and so they're really quite moving in an interesting time capsule, certainly of the first six months of the war. That mix of the very, very practical and the, it's not the same as the poetry, is it? But the, the more kind of conceptual and poetic must be difficult to balance, I suppose. He does say that 
he found it difficult when the invasion began in February 2022 to write his poetry and fiction and that the most pressing thing at that moment was simply to communicate with people, to keep everyone in touch, to make sure people had what they needed to survive. But then, you know, what's interesting in the poetry collection is that in, at least in his most recent poems, which do include some from that immediate period, it's where he allows himself seemingly to take a more, you know, realist, somber tone, which is one that he conspicuously does not allow himself to take in his public dispatches, because it was so important, understandably, to maintain the sense that victory will come. But the poems are, you know, quite dark oftentimes. He writes at one point that the value of a poem grows in wintertime, especially if the winter is hard, especially if the language is soft, especially if the times are mad. So he's always thinking about how poetry itself is operating in wartime and how it can be useful. He writes about the kind of bodies of the soldiers uh, are making the warm ground fertile. And in another one, he says, death will come to one in a hundred and that one will stand and leave. You identify in your piece this issue that he himself had and obviously many poets and chroniclers of war about the sort of ethics and the efficacy of what they're doing. And, and you quote him saying, you know, using blood and gore as literary material seems ethically dubious and completely inappropriate. It was something that he didn't feel he wanted to do at the beginning. It wasn't something that came naturally to him, even though he's written about politics and about conflict and warfare many times. But do you think he he sort of has got to a position where, as you say, the value of making art seems important to him once again? I mean, it certainly seems that way. And, you know, even if you look at his Facebook page now, it is full of kind of poetry that he just kind of writes on any given morning. Um, and I think for him, it's not really a, it doesn't seem to be an on off switch. But I do think uh, from what he has conveyed in his in the collection that he felt he needed to be quite careful about what he was doing with literature in that moment and whether people were ready to read it. You know, of course, like in war, it's arguably the most salient time for poetry to help people connect to reality, to understand what the emotional valence and scale of what is going on. And I think that that is one of the things that makes him such a powerful voice in Ukrainian letters is that he's been doing that for so long. And also, you know, Ukraine is a city or a country with such a rich literary culture, and it's only getting richer by the day. And that means that we are, you know, there are so many young Ukrainian writers and poets um, who are coming up today and on the flip side, many of them have also died in battle. Um, and I think Jadan is keenly aware of that in all of his work and kind of trying to do the best that he can as a single person to keep the literary community alive in these conditions. I suppose the fact that he's 
touring as well with the band means that they're using music that way. I'm sure, as you say, I'm sure it's to lift morale, but also the music, you know, however temporarily that's using art to to take you somewhere else, I suppose, isn't it? However briefly. Yeah. And I think that's been sorely needed. I mean, in one of the, I remember in one of the first, the first times when he, you know, dared to hold a concert in one of the underground subway stations, you know, those they're famously deep in the earth where people had taken shelter. And it was this moment of, you know, we, you know, we may be under a constant bombardment, but we are not going to kind of lose our spirit. And I think that has been a consistent theme of his activities. And, you know, I think in his posts, you know, he does act, he calls himself kind of jokingly the alternative mayor of Kharkiv. And in some ways it's really true, you know, he does take it upon himself to telegraph to people the importance of sticking together, to continuing to fight, to maintaining the will to live in Ukraine, to speak the Ukrainian language, even as the conditions get harder and the war drags on. It is very much that feeling of that resistance over such a long period of time. And of course, we're talking about the time since the full-scale invasion. Ukraine has suffered that threat from Russia for many, many years beforehand, a military incursion for many years beforehand. But how difficult is it to keep that focus and that, I suppose, that strength of resisting something over time? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly, I imagine it's very difficult for him and I don't want to speak for him, but I will say that what you can see, you know, if you follow him, as I have been doing, is that, you know, he's built this kind of really robust community of volunteers around him. Um, It's kind of this amazing, not only logistical network, you know, that's sourcing everything from cars and crayons and toys and medicines uh, to communities in the eastern in the east of Ukraine, but also a kind of community of people who do want to keep the morale up, you know, whether it's his band or it's his colleagues who are um, in journalism um, or fellow writers, people are really taking it upon themselves to do everything they can to keep morale up at this moment. I must confess I've not heard the music of of (laughs) Jadan and the dogs. I imagine you have. What's it like? Well, it's a ska band um, and it's quite, you know, it's kind of a rock, upbeat band, although they do, of course, have some more, you know, ballad-like tunes. And they kind of, they're one among many Ukrainian bands. I think, you know, they're very well known because he is very well known. Uh, And they do have some levity, you know, they always, of course, they're ska, so they have um, brass instruments in all of their numbers and Jadan provides the lyrics. And so it is kind of a natural extension of his poems, uh, which I think is what kind of gives it its galvanizing power. And they're only one among many bands in Ukraine right now that have kind of like taken up the banner of keeping people's morale up. You know, I'm sure we all remember in the early days of the invasion when, um, you know, there were these songs circulating of 
Ukrainian unity and resistance um, sung in the kind of traditional Ukrainian folk style. I mean, there were musicians in the streets, weren't there, who were playing to kind of to help keep people going. Didn't the band Jadon and the Dogs, they played at the Hay Festival, did they, I think? Uh, I'm sure they did. I think maybe <laughs> I they know. did, yeah. So I'm just ashamed to have missed that. Um, is it, I mean, talking about musicians doing it, the literary community as a whole, I mean, Lucy, you and I spoke to the director of, of a literary festival in Ukraine some time ago, didn't we? Yeah. And it was evident how important it was for events you know, like the one that that she was putting on to happen, to continue to happen. It's a literary establishment also banding together, Linda. I mean, yeah, I think we've seen that since the beginning of, I mean, even before the full-scale invasion, you know, Mm. when Crimea was invaded in 2014, absolutely. I mean, I think the difference now is that it's much more robust and that you see... You know, I think I consider the literary community to also include the journalistic community. Mm. Um, I've definitely seen that grow much more robust domestically in Ukraine as the kind of sheer need for everyone on the ground documenting as much as they can has become all that much more imperative. You know, back to this point about what literature can do in wartime, you know, the voices of Ukrainian writers have become one of the primary ways that the world is learning not only about Ukraine's present, but also about its past, right? I think for many people, it's been this, you know, unfortunately, you know, belated discovery that Ukraine has this, its own rich and independent history, its own linguistic and literary traditions and poetic styles. And I think that's one of the things that Shadan makes us keenly aware of in all of his work. Just looking at the work again, so these are new and selected poems, so there's new material in here, that it's called How Fire Descends. As you say, you have detected a, a new sort of quality in, in some of the more recent work. Yeah, I think that you can really see it quite clearly that he, that Shadan in his poetry as he was writing it, you know, privately, I imagine, um, while his beloved city was being invaded. And, you know, at this time in uh, early spring 2022, it was quite dire uh, in Kharkiv and, you know, which is quite close to the Russian border. It was, you know, a city that Russian forces thought they could take quite easily. um, And of course they did not, but you can see this kind of sense of uncertainty and, you know, stubborn resolve in his work. And there's one poem that really struck me where he writes, it's called, They Didn't Tell You. And he says, they didn't explain that death is local. It doesn't run out of the hospital yard. It is of little interest to anyone, not part of the funeral procession. And this is one of his new poems. And to me, it just seemed very prescient because of course we're in this perilous moment where Ukraine is at risk of not receiving further aid or at least sufficient aid that it needs to continue holding the line in the East. Um, 
And he knew already then that there might be, you know, those who do not have to come and kneel in the funeral processions in Ukraine may one day not be interested anymore and understood yes. the danger of that. Yes, I mean, I'm so interested. We, I don't know his poetry well at all, but I've read his novels and thinking about the novel, The Orphanage, what was particularly arresting about it was that it was bombed, war-torn city, a zoned city in which people are trying to get from one side to the other with a child. And it had that immense kind of unrealistic or, or perhaps even hyper-realistic atmosphere to it, where you felt like you could be in some kind of science fiction, dystopian kind of blasted landscape. And yet it evidently was rooted in absolute reality. It wasn't, it didn't come from his imagination. It was what he was seeing around him, but he gave it an incredibly sort of universal feel. And that's quite a talent. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that you see in a lot of his novels, you know, in Mesopotamia as well, which is also a kind of ode to Eastern Ukraine that he kind of dabbles in the magical realist <laughs> style um, and is always trying to kind of look askance uh, at his surroundings. And I think, you know, Kharkiv, where he grew up and lives, is so apt for that because the city has had so many different lives. But now known as a city of universities and of students, of student life. Yeah, I mean, and to some extent it always was, you know, even during the Soviet period. It, um did become a kind of magnet for universities and certainly now much more for kind of artists and kind of free spirits, but also has always been a kind of multicultural city, you know, a place where Russian is spoken in addition to Ukrainian and where people live side by side. Um, so it, it represents many different things, you know, um, it was mm. home to Nobel Prize winning scientists. It has this kind of incredible history, you know, the minute you scratch beneath the surface, and has, you know, for many years been kind of a hub of democratic activism in Ukraine as well. And of course, he has been an activist, as you said, right at the beginning, throughout his his life. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he, you know, has been there for every kind of political event in recent Ukrainian history. And when I met him there in 2015, it was, you know, when Russian saboteurs were threatening Kharkiv um, already and, you know, bombs had gone off in the city and there was this kind of feeling of tension in the air because, of course, Russian forces had already begun pressing um, into territory in the east. So I think, you know, one of the things that he makes us constantly remembers that this is a very long story, that this has been going on for quite some time, and that it's important to stay there to kind of defend your turf. I wonder if that idea um, that you're saying about making, you know, Alex, that you're saying it's kind of a dystopian, it could be anywhere, but but also he is obviously very strongly rooted in Kharkiv. Some of his work, do you think it's a push back against the idea that death is local? He's saying it might feel like it, but it isn't actually. This is affecting anyone and it could affect anyone. Yeah, I think that that is something that comes through in his work, but I also think that he's a realist um, at heart. And I think you kind of see that in his verse, that he is aware of all of the losses that Ukrainians are taking and the toll. 
and the kind of looking around as he describes and knowing that, you know, not everyone will survive. You know, he describes going to the funerals of his friends and watching them be to rest. So in that sense, it is very local in the sense that it, you know, perhaps it could be happening anywhere, but it's very much happening there. And he's telling us what it's like so that it's not forgotten, I suppose, as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, for him, writing is a kind of memorialization, certainly. Well, thank you so much for telling us about these two new books. I mean, we should also just just say that you say in your piece that they're just really well translated, both of them, different teams of translators are mm-hmm. on, on both of those books. But it's really, it is very important, evidently, that these books have have a life in the English speaking world where they will reach you know, necessarily kind of wider audiences and, and they're well translated to be able to do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, by several of his repeated translators. So I mm. think there are people who are very familiar with his specific syntax and tone and have rendered it quite beautifully in English. Linda, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Zahishadam. And we, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Fintan O'Toole, Linda Kinstler and John Kinsella. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.